A Merry Christmas season to everybody. Welcome to Replacement Level Morality. My name is Joseph. And I'm Andrew. So I wanted to talk to you today about the recent riots slash protests in China over COVID lockdown. So, so for those who don't know, uh, they through all the censorship, Weibo has been coming up with new hashtags faster than the censors can block them uh, as, as as kind of the indirect result of years of COVID lockdowns at this point and the direct result of uh, a fire where they were so locked down in a much more literal sense than Americans are used to that they wouldn't open the door of a burning building because that would let people out who might carry COVID into the streets, I guess. And they died in a burning fire of horror. Uh, it's very tragic. It's monstrous. It's basically a dystopian book plot, right? Yeah. Totalitarian government seals people in their apartments and then a fire breaks out. And because of those choices, a bunch of people die screaming in a fire over COVID. And I guess the there there's two tracks here. One, there's the actual like events in China, which I guess we should probably discuss first because that's like geopolitically very interesting. And then second, just the the I the remaining COVID lockdown slash COVID hawk regime such that it exists. COVID hawk singular. It's just Taylor yeah. Renz. It's Taylor Lorenz and a few mentally ill friends of hers. Okay. And it's worth like really kind of dissecting that. I agree. But what, what else has been going on in China? So, so China has had some problems lately. They've had some, uh, mini financial crises. They've been demolishing some of their apartments because there's no one to buy them. Those apartments are of course leveraged and there's a lot of losers on the financial side there. Uh, so, Financial instability that's uh, brought along fundamentally by China being China, but also COVID zero is an expensive policy that literally prevents people from doing any producing. It's hard to have an economy that's without any producing. Meanwhile, on the political side, Xi has just completely consolidated power in a kind of unprecedented way. There was uh, until a couple a couple months or weeks ago, um, there was pretty regular turnover in who the chairman of the party was, as I understand it. And I'm not, I'm not an expert on this. This is just yeah. the facts Typic- as I understand them. Typically the president of China has been term limited ish. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's just one of those very soft precedents. It wasn't necessarily like hard coded into any kind of like law or tradition so much as, who was a method by which leadership had a level of turnover. So you didn't have conflict, right? Like in a, in a regime, like in the, the CCP, your biggest concern would be people on the out of side of power, deciding to get together and fight the people on the inside of power. But if you have a regular turnover, you, per, you kind of short circuit that and allow other, other clicks their time to shine. But that would require Z to give up power, and he's not ready. Uh, he decided by himself. So he, he and he also decided that it was more efficient just to terminate all of your enemies and throw them in prison, and then just make it so that everyone's just on your team, and they will never breathe another word otherwise. That's not common. Like we think of that as common to authoritarian regimes, but there were there were other people who were powerful within the party, and. She got rid of a lot of them, not because they were a problem for him. There was no sign of any disloyalty. He just wanted to flex that he's in charge and he's a more total dictator than he was, say, two months ago. So so that's happening. And, you know, people are finding out about this and they're exhausted by COVID lockdowns. You know, it was years ago that you saw like images of everyone in these towers kind of like shouting at each other and just like collectively screaming and wailing in a way that's, you know, like you said, out of a dystopian novel. It wasn't years ago. I know it feels like it, but that happened over 2022 during the last round of, during the last round of lockdowns in China. Yeah. 
Okay. I, I thought it was older than that, but the the lockdowns themselves are obviously since the end of 2019. So that is three years. Obviously, we want China to become more democratic and there have to be cracks in CCP power in order for that to happen. But instability is a problem on its own. Yes. <laughs> Especially when it comes to our largest trading partner, the second largest military in the world. Point being, they're a big deal. And suddenly there is unprecedented domestic political strife, which is not something they've had to deal with in the past. The Not since Tiananmen, at least. The, the reason this is happening is not just the fatigue of the lockdowns themselves, but a distaste for the kind of party apparatchik that has been empowered as a consequence of Xi's present course. And because apparently over the last three years, the easiest way to get promoted and become powerful in the party not is not just do exactly as Xi would wish, but also be the biggest dick about COVID possible. Yep. And those are the people who have, you, you know, when you don't have to worry about, you know, the sentiment, popular sentiment at all about your policies, you really only have one man, please. And that's what he wants. So you just do it and you do it at the loudest volume possible because you want to prove you're better than the other people who are obviously clued into doing the same thing. Well, when those are your managers and the people that you are managing are no longer buying what you are selling, like going into the streets and tearing down COVID testing booths. You've got a problem because they're protesting you. <laughs> like they are, it's, it's, it's the system that they have become so dissatisfied by because they know they're in a totalitarian system that will fucking kill them for this. Right. There's no illusions about what this means. They, the, the people who are in the streets right now, the people who are protesting, they have made the calculation that it is better to die at the hands of their totalitarian government than permit themselves to live under its jackboot moment further. And that takes a level of dissatisfaction that is quite intense. As as you have told me often, people won't riot at risk to themselves unless there are serious bread and butter issues in the literal sense of they don't have any bread or butter because you, when you're risking your life, it has to be because your life is at risk either way. And exactly. when you see something evo as evocative as they were locked into their uh, burning building so thoroughly that they couldn't escape, that'll get you feeling that your life is at risk either way. So you might as well try to go out swinging. And with the I, only swings you can do. And the, and the danger, of course, is if you're the regime, if there's enough people that have decided to take this path, that they can encourage enough other people to do the same. China has a very large population and its security state does not scale to control it. This is this is this is the truth in a lot of places, but particularly in China, like they're very technocratic. Because using surveillance tools allows them to scale up technology to be able to monitor their huge population where they don't really have the manpower to control them in the way that you would have to if you lacked those tools. So these protests started happening over the last two days because China doesn't have like enough boots on the ground and guns in hand to just like go into these places at the snap of a finger. They have to be right. very careful about their next steps and they cannot just do what they did on Tiananmen Square anymore because now everyone's got a cell phone and they're all recording it because they build them there. <laughs> and so it, the, they will not be able to escape that information within the Great Wall firewall area. You know what I mean? It's well, going to get out. Cell phones are in a lot of ways the foundation of their legitimacy. Not Not cell phones per se, but the advancing and we're, we're technologically and economically developing, at least in the cities, our people are living normal middle class lives in a way that they weren't 30 years ago. And that's their answer to what have the Romans ever done for us? Well, now they have these cell phones. <laughs> you can't 
you can't just kill all the people that are protesting anymore because they, like I said, they can create new hashtags faster than the hashtags can be blacked out. And people are savvy to the technological tools that allow them to communicate not just on your platform and without your permission, but around your platform. You know, like the word will get out, videos will spread, and there's not a lot that you can do to stop it, particularly if it gets, you know, bad at the level that a bunch of people die in a fire that didn't have to die. That's really where this comes from. That's all interesting. Very excited to see where it goes. Wish the best for the Chinese people who are protesting this. All the props for their bravery. Yeah. Uh, brave, braver than me, you know, yep. and um, worth worth wishing them the best. I, I don't suspect it will end well, if I'm going to be perfectly honest. But uh, we'll see. You know, like Hong Kong was an area where you saw the same thing, and that was probably a higher percentage chance to work. And it most certainly did not. You know, like think about how everyone involved in those protests suffered horrifically over the last three years. You run out of the country, imprisoned, up to and including like the Catholic Archbishop of Hong Kong, an 85-year-old man, <laughs> you know, like just they, they've had no chill in punishing everyone that was involved with that. So I really don't think that the, there's going to be a difference here. So I actually think the math was on the Hong Kongers side. Like the, the protests were so widespread that they could have had. I, I would have bet on them if it weren't for COVID in particular and the way that SARS hit Hong Kong in particular, but that whole region, there's a much stronger culture of compliance around public health decrees. Right. So when COVID happened, the, the protests mostly stopped, you know, they're still, they still happened, but they lost a lot of their edge because there, there was already the culture of you don't disobey the authorities during a health a public health crisis. But yeah, without one, that, I think they had a real good shot. And, and once the the threat on the street was passed, and then it's like okay, green light to start coming in and start picking these people off. All the all the organizers. That's who you got to get rid of. Yep. If you're if you're China, you know you're trying to prevent this from happening. All the, all the thousands of people go into the street because of the dozens that encourage them to. So you get the dozens and then eliminates the rest of your problem. But that does bring up like COVID regime lingering effects because, you know, China's an outlier, obviously, in the zero COVID policy. But uh, the United States, depending on where you are, that shit is long gone or still like lingering on a certain, on a fringe, depending on what you're doing and where you're going. But mostly absent except for some some few elites tastemakers i guess who have become wedded to covid hawkism in a way that can only be called pathological uh do you remember the name i forgot but he was some ccp hope i hope he was getting paid um <laughs> but <laughs> he argued that because in like 2021 when re when uh when restrictions were starting to lift he said that the best thing that could happen for the u.s was to be conquered by china so that they could reinstate covid zero do you remember this guy i don't ian remember his name miles chong ian okay. miles chong said that i'm pretty damn sure yeah that sounds right yeah um it's not looking so good these days <laughs> Uh, scoreboard is, is not a great take. <laughs> yeah. A, a, aged like milk as the kids say. So th the whole, that was the worst of it by a lot, but the whole mindset of we could have gotten rid of COVID if we had just locked down harder and we hit like complied harder. I mean, that really was, was the take for like 12 months. It was. It, yeah. And the reason it was wrong was like people were operating with these mental models of smallpox where we can just eradicate it if we do all the right things. But there, there's a particular list of a bunch of conditions that allowed us to eradicate smallpox that included like slow mutation, no animal reservoirs. There's a whole list that like came from 
the people that were in charge of the project of eradicating smallpox, none of which applied to COVID. COVID is an easily transmitted respiratory virus that is also not nearly as serious. No, it never was, even at its peak, compared to some of the other historic pandemic diseases that have been faced. There was a lot of concern at the beginning that it killed 20, it hospitalized 20% of the people who got it and killed 2%. That was yeah. the, the hot data. I heard, I heard numbers up to 5%. Uh, yeah. Uh, and it turns out that that was off by more than an order of magnitude on both counts. <laughs> so it just wasn't at all what was advertised at the start. And I think that a lot of people readjusted as new information came available. Some people who were pro lockdown out of concern, changed their opinions or revised their position, which rational people want to do. But there are some folks who just got scared in that moment and they can't let it go either because of inability to face the humiliation of being wrong, which is probably part of it. But also when you get scared and you retreat into safety, it's really hard to come out of that mindset, even if there's reason to come out of it. And you see that a lot in, in the remaining COVID hawks. I think you mentioned your favorite being uh, your best friend and mine, Washington Post journalist uh, extraordinaire, uh, Taylor Lorenz. Who is, to this day, arguing that the U.S. W- is less noble, less valiant than China, and we should we should continue to enact their COVID zero policies, even in the face of this, everything that has happened. I want to make the case the classical liberal approach was the correct one. I'm going to anger some of my more libertarian and even just more right-wing generally allies on, on COVID policy. But when what we knew was that Italy was doing wartime style triage of who lives and who dies, I have no problem with the measures that were taken. Christy Nome made a big deal about how, unlike uh, Ron DeSantis, she didn't lock down at all. And after everything that's happened, I think that was the wrong policy. I think that given what we knew at the time, it was perfectly fine to apply a hard break of like the, the cancel things. But there was a time when basketball games were still scheduled, and that's indoor. Yeah, they they kind canceled of March Madness. I'll never forget that. Like they canceled sports. Like Jesus. At the beginning of World War II, when there were U-boats, uh, there was a decree that along the coast there had to be blackouts, uh, and this is in a very libertarian fashion. The people refused to comply with the blackouts because, you know, they can have their lights and nobody could stop them from having their lights. That would be authoritarian. And having lights on got a bunch of ships sunk because you can see the ship against the background of the light. You notice that there's a ship there and you can sink it. This is a kind of a classic failure of (laughs) of uh, individualism. In general, and as a big fan of individualism, I'm not happy about this. But there is a real case that, as adults, we have to deal with where the larger the threat is, the larger the government response can be. And of course, this creates an incentive for government to constantly have crises. And we talked about last week, they still want the crisis to go on because it gives them extra power. Precisely. That's why people can't trust it. Even even if, frankly, I agree with you in spirit of everything you're saying. Well, uh, Christy Nome was wrong. She should democracy is hard. I, 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 that's my answer. Democracy is hard. We have, as voters, we have to be able to say, this is a real threat that, like Nazi Germany is a real threat that we can, empower, we have to empower the state to deal with. And this is not. And in the first weeks of COVID, when we didn't have any information, I'm perfectly okay with taking some drastic measures that were clearly temporary. And this is where I think the 
the real problem with the COVID response was. They never gave us the information. It was there. The, the CDC stats were there. You could look on the website and see that if you use 15-year-olds as a baseline, senior citizens were something like 6,000 times more likely to die. Just a truly drastic amount. It was evident it, within the first six weeks. Couple months. Yeah. Six couple weeks. Months. It was clear. The data was had a clear line through like, oh, this is, this is, you thought it was going to be one way, but it's going to be the other way. Right? Like this is clearly a disease that is hitting the elderly very hard and everyone else not at all. And so we should fashion how we are responding to this around this, this clear data set that is, is coming from this. And the messaging of not even, it wasn't even the government because it was Trump's administration. Like it was the media apparatus as a whole could not allow any dissent on severity of COVID because you sounded like a crackpot. Well, that's not even right. People who were completely responsible doctors and public health figures who just said, hey, this is not as deadly as you're being taught to think it is. We're not allowed to have a platform in a really shameful way. And that's where, as much as I agree with you that Christy Nome was wrong to not take sensible precautions in the absence of that information in March of April of 2020, I ultimately believe that she was right not to lock down, not because that that was the correct decision from a rational point of view, but because what COVID hopefully taught every single person in this country whether they wish to speak it aloud or not, is that you cannot trust the government nor the media with that kind of unchecked authority over your freedoms. Yeah. Like that, that is the rebellion that actually ultimately ended COVID, right? Like in terms of the response. Yep. It was a rejection of the state apparatus to control you bit by bit, little by little, and then a lot at the end. But it wasn't even the state apparatus. Like like I said, this was Trump's administration and Ron DeSantis ended the lockdown in, what, three months? It, it was short because the data was there. Because the data was on his side that he was and, making the right decision. And Trump was also, like, on that train trying to get people to stop locking down. Like, he had less power over individual states deciding to still lock down and it became baked into the political cake because it was an election year to oppose Trump. You also supported lockdowns, particularly in blue states. So that's where a lot of this poisonous mix came from, right? It made a, what should have been a data-driven objective decision-making process into a political process. And Ron DeSantis was right on the merits, but because he was doing what Trump wanted, it made it bad, right? And it made Ron DeSantis the worst governor on the planet. There were there were articles written about how you know, Brian Kemp is literally murdering people in Georgia because he ended the lockdowns pretty early. Do you remember Ron DeSantis? Oh, of course. Yeah, the guy who won by 20 points a few weeks ago. I remember him. Like, the, the end of COVID as a regime that was controlling – happened because everyone just stopped wearing masks regardless of what the rules were. I'll never forget the Super Bowl of of 2022. Truly a seminal moment in freedom. Yep. It's in Los Angeles, California. California then still had a mask mandate mandate outdoors and indoors. You watch the Super Bowl and no one is wearing a mask even though it's required in the building they're in. Up to and including the governor of California, who said when he was around people who weren't wearing masks, he was holding his breath. I didn't inhale. And in, in that moment, it was just so ridiculous and so obvious what the scheme was and what had been done that they abandoned masks weeks later it, but- entirely. So that goes to my point that the underlying problem here is not like, oh, the state will take power and never give it back because states did. The federal government did. It was the polluted information landscape. It was the ultimate case for free expression, for tolerance of ideas, and not just a legal perspective because you were never going to get put in jail for saying wrong thing. 
but you might get kicked off Twitter. You might get kicked out of play company. And that was the real problem was we got to the right. We, we, you and I got to the right answer because we were in communities where it was tolerated to dissent and the right ideas won because they were so obviously correct and data driven. It was the environments where the information mark, the marketplace of ideas wasn't functioning where disinformation was censored to disastrous intent. And this is, I think reflected in the increasingly, um, shall we say fragile arguments that COVID Hawks continue to put into the universe, Taylor Lorenz among them, that there needs to be nationwide required masking in the United States because the immunocompromised can't go into polite society because they could get COVID because if no one's wearing a mask. A you know, completely like, polluted information market broke her mind. Yes. Permanently. Like, She'll never be okay again. Yeah. And then and that's a shared trait amongst a lot of the people who are hanging on to this is they really did adopt it as part of their personality and persona in a religious fashion. And when that choice was made that to, to enter into this particular church, you must speak this specific shibboleth, no matter how ridiculous it becomes, you're willing to make the worst arguments for the worst policies because now you're, you're being reinforced by this group rather than by anything resembling the truth. You can never get to, it would be better for the U.S. if China invaded and conquered it. If anyone around you is able to say, touch grass. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and, and I think one of the other things that uh, Taylor Lorenz shared was uh, a speech from some CCP apparatchik that said the reason why COVID zero is the policy in China is because long COVID is going to devastate the Western labor force over the next decade. And, you know, we want to prevent our people from getting long COVID. And let, so let's be clear here. Nearly every person in the United States has been exposed to or been infected by COVID-19 at this juncture. If long COVID. Uh, and was, according to Taylor Lorenz, there's no natural immunity. You just keep getting infected. If there was such a thing that was able to be like scientifically determined that you could call long COVID, you would have found it by now. It's been three years, right? Like why is it that it continues to be mostly white upper-class women that suffer from long COVID in blue States specifically? Why isn't there long COVID in Alabama and Tennessee, but a lot in California per capita? You know, why is there a lot in Massachusetts, but not in Iowa? Uh, because people get debilitating illnesses all the time. And in blue states where you don't have a proper information ecosystem, you think it's COVID that's doing this to you. Right. And, you know, why is it attacking certain ethnic groups? Why is it attacking certain economic strata? It's because there's a whole culture of work shy usually white women who want to use the excuse of otherwise invisible long-term illness as to why they should receive economic benefits from the state and not work. Now, and that is Taylor, a real thing, by the way, like that is, that is a pattern you can pretty firmly establish in Taylor's defense. As we've established, old people are at particular risk and should take it seriously. Absolutely. So, so for her personally, she is immunica. She, she is at risk. Like you said, I, if, if you accepted her word, her statement about her immunocompromised status, oh, no, no, then yes, I'm making a joke about her, her age. Come on, man. <laughs> oh, dad, I miss it. I can't believe you missed that. I missed it. Taylor's oh, age jokes are your bread and butter. Oh, 57 year old woman, Taylor Lorenz. Yeah. And ever before have I seen a journalist whose fucking birth date is like in Fort Knox. You know, like that Listen, it's, it's like state when, you're, secret. when your dad's the founder of the Wayback Machine, you can do yeah. that. God. And maybe that's another topic for us is to like take apart like the the elite journalism 
rich daddy element. I mean, we talked about journalism uh, and how it failed already, but my mother listens to this podcast. I do not want to talk about how Cat Turd is a character on Twitter. <laughs> Andrew, this this past week end weekend. It's been really forty eight hours since this story started to develop. Has truly been a news cycle built specifically for my interests. Yeah, you got you have some of that uh, the deep web experience from from the before times that I don't have. I've always kept myself away from the Moss Eisley like areas of the internet. I, on the other hand, have communed with scum and villainy for the entirety of my adult life, certainly in the pre-Web 2.0 days. And the fact that I'm about to get to talk about on my podcast, my deep understanding of the lore behind Milo Yiannopoulos and Nick Fuentes, who, for whatever reason, are now boys with Kanye West and had dinner with the President of the United States on Thanksgiving, truly is just the bringing together of my very online life and interest in wild niche political figures. It's a synthesis born in the fiery depths of hell, and I am so happy that we're here. Uh, I have I have said that I'm the first listener to this. I'm... <laughs> You think we've mo- you think I've monologued before in the last like five of six episodes we've done? Oh, sir, I'm, I'm just here. I, I am going to ask you a number of strategic questions because this is such a big and deep story that I I want to gauge you as someone who's relatively informed of how much you know and how much it really needs to be explained about what just happened. That um, sounds like some strategy. So let's roll the clock back to 2016. And that was at the advent of social media really taking over the political space, particularly Twitter, particularly because of Trump's use of Twitter. It's it's funny to talk about Twitter in the context of 2016 because we're kind of returning to 2016 Twitter right now. IRL, like this was before people got banned for content that wasn't explicitly criminal or harassment. Okay. And so, you know, people forget like David Duke used to have a – a Twitter account and you would beef with Chris Evans. Uh, like our IRL version of Red Skull would be arguing with the IRL version of Captain America <laughs> and on the internet for everyone to see, you know, like what? <laughs> like this was something that we were all used to uh, before Twitter went under far more censorious management and decided to cut all of that off. So it was a wild time. And in, in this this mix of the expansive reach of social media, its unregulated form and the dawning of political conversations that come from that context came something that was called the alt right, which I know you've heard of. I have. Now, what do you think the alt right is? That's my question for you. Uh, The alt right is, not as necessarily racist as they're commonly portrayed, but they're very much into like white people being replaced by immigrants and we must unite as native born, if not necessarily white, but usually and stop them secure, like not just only legal immigration, but just no immigration and uh, a good bit of racism and anti-Semitism tossed in to the mix. You're about 50% correct. Okay. So the alt-right was a term coined by Richard Spencer. Richard Spencer being, I guess, the progenitor of the new wave of explicit white nationalism in the United States. If David, the aforementioned David Duke, like an old school KKK member who got, became notorious in the 80s because he successfully... Uh, won the Republican primary to be a senator in Louisiana. Um, it was a whole adventure there. Uh, if he was the 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 prior generation of that, uh, then Richard Spencer represented essentially the the new generation. And the alt right really was when it was formed the explicit political uh, vehicle for at that time 
white identitarianism, white supremacy, like very explicitly. Um, it's the, the definition you've given that kind of softened that edge is, is something I'll explain in a second as to what change happened where people now have a kind of confused understanding of where the genesis of this came from. But make no mistake, when the alt-right came into being, the actual membership, if you want to call it that, of the alt-right was exclusively the province of the worst people on the planet. Okay. And so so I, I thought it was more explicitly white identitarian, but kind of toned down in the supremacy. But it was like, we can be proud of white heritage if black people can be proud of black heritage. And that's like clearly in yellow card territory. <laughs> Nice World Cup reference. Thank We're you. so timely. I, I that is that was the spinoff. That was the sort of the second okay. order effect of the alt right because what happened was these guys showed up. They had a lot of money behind them, or at least they had really good marketing, and they were able to penetrate into the political world without really normies understanding what it was. And so when the alt right started to get talked about, a lot of normie libertarian conservative identifying lean Republican voters thought it was calling them that. And so they adopted it like, yeah, I'm alt, right. F you. Right. Like that's I'm not the, the establishment. Yeah. I'm not the establishment. And then people re- like, this is where you have the separation of people like Mike Cernovich, who's, I would say alt light, which is really what this was the pejorative term of these people that were like, saw what the alt right was and then took like seven steps back. <laughs> that's gonna be a no from me dog so uh this was the, the the kind of the state of play in 2016 after trump wins like people figure this all out and you've got richard spencer and his like who suddenly are persona non grata immediately once it's because you know, there was that whole moment where everyone was doing like the nazi salutes at that meeting and was on camera and he got punched at the inauguration or something like it all sort of finally per- boiled up. Like people figured out who this guy was and then the split happened. And this is still pre Charlottesville. This is all pre Charlottesville, but it's important to lay this foundation because this <laughs> is the moment into which Milo Yiannopoulos was born. who's a key player in all of this. He was there for all of this. And then Nick Fuentes is probably the first person that came into being as a political figure in the aftermath of that and was formed by these things existing. So next question, do you know who Milo Yiannopoulos is? So I know what I know about Milo Yiannopoulos is he is not Matt Iglesias, despite having the same initials. Uh, This is very accurate. Yes. They're very different people. Very different. Um, he was big around the time when I was in college. Cause there was a, like a mini brouhaha's about him being invited. He like, he wanted to get on college campuses and college campuses did not want him on, on college campuses. So the, following like fire and all their fighting against this invitation, it was, he was a, a recurring character there. I actually um, saw my Leonopolis at a college visit at Ohio university. Oh yes. So, so, so you've seen him. I had to know. Yeah, you had to know. <laughs> that will be part of my story. Um, and then I, I know that people cite him as kind of a, the successful example of deplatforming of where he got taken off of Twitter and then nobody went to his stuff anymore and it was just kind of successful. I wasn't deplatforming that Twitter the, of Twitter that really got him because that actually well, it was YouTube. It was it was. I'll explain the yes, fall of my monopoly part of the story. Okay. So Milo, I, I saw someone phrase it this way. I wish I, I remembered exactly who said because I could credit I could credit them. But I will simply say this was not, not my construction. If you consider in conservative media intelligentsia Ben Shapiro to be Batman, then Milo Yiannopoulos was desperately attempting to be the Joker. Okay, he was. What if Christopher Hitchinson was? extremely gay okay and that's by his description essentially right he portrayed himself as a um a conservative classically liberal british intelligentsia 
type of figure, but also a flamboyant showman who emphasized his flamboyancy and indeed his sexuality. Okay. Okay. And this gave him this sort of counterculture transgressive vibe because he was the, the, he was the, the community joke. Get, get away from that black gay Hitler. You know, like it's, it's, it was ridiculous that he was this, this very flamboyant figure, but was supposed to be speaking to Trump voters. Like it didn't make sense to people. Right. And Mm -hmm. it got him a ton of attention because he also knew how to be provocative on purpose. And he most certainly was. However, as I mentioned, after all of this, you know, controversy swirling around how this guy is the, 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 the worst person in Trump war, but I wouldn't actually went to one of these college visits in Ohio university, as I mentioned, because I had to know, I'm like, what is this guy about? Is he really that bad? I sat next to actually a journalist from the Netherlands who was basically curious about the same thing. We were both there and we like walked away from him. Like that guy's got very normal conservative beliefs. His entire speech was about how it was about women in STEM was a big thing. And he did this whole monologue. It was like 45 minutes about one of the original uh, designers of the code for the Apollo Apollo 12 mission and like how women have always been in STEM, but the idea is that, you know, women will more likely self-select into those roles because that roles when they excel at them and, and women aren't typically the type of people that are, and that's fine. You just embrace the diversity when it comes. Don't try and force it. It just lowers standards, which is like the least controversial take on, on that that I've ever heard. That's supposed to be a contrary one, you know, like right. people should do this if they want to is really like, <laughs> Wow, man, you're really counterculture. You're man, toxic waste dump. This dude, right? So, I was never like thought like this guy is very normal opinions. He's just very provocative on purpose. He calls people names. He 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 purposely antagonizes folks. He knows how to get attention. This is what his his actual value is. His opinions are pretty normal center right stuff. The but Milo, because he's such a such a showman, he doesn't know he doesn't have a self-regulating impulse. So he went from, you know, going on Bill Maher's show and being called the next Christopher Hitchinson to completely canceled because he decided to go on a couple podcasts, Joe Rogan included, and sort of suggested that children having sex is okay. <laughs> and that that'll get you <laughs> turns out there is too far and that is precisely it uh he, he did not survive what's that to the wood chipper yeah he did not survive first contact with suggesting pedophilia was maybe okay <laughs> and uh he was firmly canceled his he was uh really bankrolled by the mercers and that came to an end. That's really he didn't got kicked off of Twitter. He was being canceled left and right. He was stripped his book deal, all these things. But it was that that actually put him out because then okay. suddenly all of the support he had on the right side vanished. He came to prominence though because he was playing footsie with Richard Richard Spencer because it was super provocative to like you know be the gay you know uh, fellow traveler of the Nazi. He just saw that there was this lane to get a ton of press by using this weird confluence of events. So he was, he said, I'm not a member of the alt-right, but I consider them fellow travelers in several respects. And, you know, identified the sort of that, that alt-light line that ended up getting drawn in that way. And that's kind of where he sat. And a lot of people have always hated Milo Yiannopoulos because he decided to play footsie with Richard Spencer and, and the for real, for real racists. And then, you know, he did the stupid thing that people so often do when they are filled with hubris. And that is cross a line that they felt that they were uh, able to cross and not suffer consequences and find out the hard way that they do. Okay. So, so we've got Milo, we've got Richard Spencer. We've got the alt-right. We've got Milo, who kind of was birthed into that and was really not an alt-right person, but made a point of associating with it to gain attention. I think this is Kanye West, but it kind of – okay. So, you know, 
uh, a generationally talented artist who money, like many generationally talented artists have unregulated mental illness. That's Kanye West, right? Like, yep. And then you have Nick Fuentes. Nick Fuentes is a child of his time. And I do mean child in a way because he is still only in his mid twenties. He has been in the game literally since uh, he was 18 years old. Nick came to prominence because of Charlottesville, which was, I want to say the, both the top and then the immediate bottom of the alt-right because before Charlottesville, the alt-right was still around. It still had, I will call it a, uh, a decent amount of of people willing to participate with it. Um, you know, the, the country is large enough that there may be only be a few thousand dyed-in-the-wool hardcore white supremacists out there, but they were – because the internet tied them all together under these, these people who were willing to um, – front run the the movement and be rallying points uh they would all show up right and that's what's the story of charlottesville is that a whole bunch of white supremacists showed up maybe not a lot in the absolute sense of people in the united states but a lot if they show up in the same place at the same time and they wind up throwing hands with a bunch of people who take objection to that it gets very chaotic someone runs over uh, someone runs over and kills someone and then it's just real bad right? yep. like all of it's terrible, and it really represented the high point of the alt-right movement in that they managed to put all these people together in the same place at the same time. And then the immediate low point, as it was essentially their end, because everyone involved with that that touched anything that seemed criminal basically never recovered. And the whole the whole thing was blasted to the ashes it deserved to be. Turns out there is such a thing as negative publicity. And yes, it turns out if it's negative enough. It can be bad for you. But Nick Fuentes, 18-year-old Nick Fuentes was present there because he, having a big old taste of six edgy 12U, didn't think that normal conservative ink was conservative enough. As Fuentes himself would talk about, there's a real path if you want to be involved in politics, especially partisan politics, you get involved with the right groups and the right people and you can have your opportunities, right? And he, you know, he could have he, he could have worked for Turning Point USA as an, an ambassador, you know, and he could have, you know, work, tried to, to take a trajectory where he might work on Capitol Hill or work on campaigns or whatever, right? Whatever his interests might have been. But the thing about that is you got to be willing to tow lines and you have to be willing to answer to other people and you got to be willing to just do whatever it is that you're asked to do to be a foot soldier for an extended period in these systems. Right. You have a, a policy differ- disagreement with the senator you're working for. You got to swallow that and get them elected. You're, you're, you're an operative. Correct. And Nick Fuentes was – Somebody who didn't want to be a foot soldier for anyone. He wanted to speak what he felt was his truth and what he believed. And he went to Charlottesville more out of curiosity than I think an 18-year-old with sincerely held political beliefs, which I, as an oxymoron, I believe in, in statement, I don't think 18-year-olds have sincerely held political beliefs. Listen, if 18-year-olds don't have sincerely held political beliefs, that like halves the number of libertarians that exist. So I need to just <laughs> I'm about sorry that right to damage now. people. <laughs> um <laughs> But in that, he was solidified on a path that he hated establishment conservatism and he wanted to stand for the alt-right and stand explicitly for anti-Semitism and white identitarianism and white supremacy. And he got to start broadcasting on right side news network, which is like very Trumpy because he's very pro-Trump. But he got canceled off of that pretty quick and – Made it a point. He really kind of got his street cred by, and I think this is probably what his actual origin story. I don't actually know the, the, I know there's no deep lore on if like he tried to work for Turning Point USA and like had a falling out with him. They got very notorious by going, by motivating people like him on college campuses and getting them to show up at Turning Point USA events and heckle Charlie Kirk to his face in front of cameras and like take over the events and like, fill up the the speaking and just like challenge him directly on like very questionable political grounds. And you know, that he was the leader of these people. 
they were called the Grapers. I remember Grapers, yes. Yes. And that is his fan base. The America First Movement. Uh, his show is called America First with Nick, Nicholas J. Fuentes. That's what he calls it. And his followers are the Grapers. And for a long time, he was actually on YouTube. He got canceled off of that. And then all the alt streaming platforms banned him until he created a boutique one called Cozy TV that he streams to Cozy.TV that he streams to to this day. And he has maintained a live stream political podcast presence in this explicitly alt right, white identitarian, white supremacist uh and very virulently anti-Semitic position. Here's the thing. Nick Fuentes is the biggest lol cow on the planet. Nick Fuentes is the least threatening figure I think that exists in public life. Nick Fuentes is a self-described incel who is so socially awkward that his former compatriots have spilled all the tea about how he doesn't know how to like interact with people at parties. So he just doesn't go to them. Like he, he his idea of a, of a good night is to sit down and play civilization five, you know, and just like not interact. Hashtag with relatable. Like, I know. Right. Like don't, I'm trying to not trying to paint a picture here, but uh, his, when his best friend Jaden, who was a fellow America first person moved out of the building that he owns because it's, he's from family money. He's got a building that wasn't, he inherited an apartment building. Big shocker, I know. Like someone can only afford to be like this if they already have money. Um, they, he was paranoid that his friend had had sex, which was forbidden with a woman. He came into his apartment with a blacklight to check for bodily fluid stains. No, no, no. Why am I hearing about this? <laughs> like I've worked so hard in my life to keep I'm, all of this, uh, not touching it with a ten and a half foot pole. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. In the spirit of the season, a 39 and a half foot pole. <laughs> you don't, you want to stay away from this. Yes. I, I, I'm sorry, but it's true. Uh, his whole movement essentially collapsed in on itself over the last two years. Uh, he, he is not very good at organizing people in an effective fashion because he's so explicitly a white supremacist. Every politician that was even tangentially associated with him who are on themselves on the extreme right have disavowed him, including Paul Gosar and uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, right? Like those two are the furthest right wackos in national politics, right? Like they are the raggedy edge, even though they're like, fuck this guy. When you've right? lost Paul Gosar, yeah. you've lost middle America and then some. So, you know, he won't do the work. The people that he had working for him that were quit. And, you know, he he was basically able to maintain this position because he turned America first into this weirdo incel cult amongst a bunch of doomer zoomers who had nothing to do but ship him their 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 allowance money. And that's how he's maintained his presence of the last couple of years. And like I said, he's got this little boutique tr- streaming service, cozy.tv where he and his, you know, compatriots stream. And it's not very, it's like a thousand total streamers who are even authorized to use the service. It's like a tiny platform, right? So it's just for him and his dudes to, to harvest what little money they can as part of this, this grift. He had all of his money impounded by the FBI from his checking account because he was at January 6th and then took like a whole bunch of Bitcoin donations from overseas and cashed them out. acted super sus. And they put him on a no-fly list. I don't think he should be on a no-fly list, to be completely honest. And nor should his money be impounded unless there's an actual crime that they can prove. I'm very anti-use of the Patriot Act against people domestically. Like, I, I join you in your libertarian priors when it comes to, like, the no-fly list and, and that sort of thing in, in particular. Uh, not... An- exact analog but uh catherine mengu ward's law is any tool intended to fight terrorism will be turned to fight the drug war not the drug war but similar and like we you know i I have a background in anti-money laundering and came away opposed to 95 percent of it but there (laughs) there are people who wire half a million dollars to afghanistan and someone should probably take a look at that like yeah there are there are cases in which it is is probably valid. And you just those, you just can't turn those tools on random civilian or random citizens doing random things. It's like did Nick Fuentes maybe take some Bitcoin money from overseas and potential state actors and that sort of thing? Yeah, 
But, you know, if if that amount is the problem that needs to be carved off from the rest of his assets, not just like seize his assets, you know, because right. he can. Um, and I don't think anyone should be on a no fly list unless they've been charged with a crime. Period. You just you get to fly. That's Based. something you should not be pre- pre- prevented from doing because you have political opinions people don't like no matter how bad they are. So uh, that's Nick Fuentes. These are now the stage is set. Here we are half hour in. We finally got it. So we've got the whole story out. So what happened? Well, what happened uh, was Trump doesn't know who people are. And it's just like he, he's met Kanye West, you know, you know, Kanye they, West is a fellow famous person, right? They, he has visited the white house previously. Yes. They, they, As is his ex-wife, Kim Kardashian. They, yes. They've, you know, they've been good friends and he is always welcome at Mar-a-Lago. I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure. And they have Thanksgiving together and Yi brings along some guests that have not been invited by Trump, but sure, he can bring some guests. Trump doesn't know who these people are. No big deal. And Kanye West enters Mar-a-Lago with apparently a former Trump uh, Florida elections organizer, like some kind of like workhorse Trump campaign state level campaign person who is, is running the operation for Kanye West 2024 presidential campaign. I guess that's actually the jumping off point is to say Kanye West announced he's going to run for president, which he did before. So everyone thinks it's just another like marketing gag. And he shows up to this meeting with an actual elections person, Milo Yiannopoulos and the, the really random one, Nick Fuentes and sits down. And they all have a, dinner with Trump reports of the dinner range wildly, but the consensus is as you described, Trump probably didn't know really who Nick Fuentes was probably didn't know what, who Milo Yiannopoulos was and entertained it because Kanye brought them, but had pleasant conversation with Fuentes specifically because Fuentes, you know, was a huge Trump fan. And so he could like re- recite chapter and verse of everything he's ever done over the last six years. Probably better and than Trump could. Probably. Yeah. Which is why he liked it. Because his ego was being burnished by this guy who clearly was, you know, obsessed with every word he's ever said. And at some point, the conversation took a negative turn. Because Kanye West said that Trump should be his vice president because he failed as president. And oh boy. Yeah, it got awkward. They yelled at each other. Eventually they left and suddenly the news got out that this meeting occurred at all, right? And it's all the more interesting when you consider that Milo Yiannopoulos really doesn't like Trump anymore. He really hates the successful grifters in Trump's orbit. I guess that's the way I would put it. The people who have managed to lamprey onto Trump and Trump's political brand successfully okay. and have made a career out of it. Even if that, you know, this future success may not be necessarily in the cards, no matter what happens for Donald Trump. But there are, are definitely a group of people who have made their careers off of being in his orbit. Right. And there, continued- there's money to be printed. If nothing, if no elections to be won. Correct. And a lot of people have uh, benefited, if not directly from Trump uh, being on his payroll, then at a minimum being within his orbit and, and being able to capture those dollars by gaining an audience as a consequence of being part of that movement, which Milo was, and then he got yeeted as a consequence of his own stupid mouth. But he does not see it that way. Wait, wait, did he get yeeted? Nah. Well, he is quite vengeful and has stated so. And I firmly believe that Milo Yiannopoulos made all of this happen specifically so that Trump would be painted as a terrible and awful white supremacist for talking to Nick Fuentes and having a positive opinion about him because he knew he would the moment Fuentes got in there and was, you know, able to, to wow him with all of his fanboy nonsense. And that would be the story. Cause right. so, so, so Milo is the mastermind here. He's like, Hey, Hey Kanye, do you want to get Nick Fuentes and go have, Thanksgiving with Trump. Oh no, I, I, the con runs deeper than that. Oh, okay. The con is this: Kanye wants to do this run for president thing, and 
probably because he's a flamboyant showman. Th- this is the missing link that no one has. How did Milo Yiannopoulos meet Kanye West? Right? There are a lot of theories. But no one has any evidence to exactly how these two met. Okay. There's, there's a missing link that maybe that comes to light at some point. Someone's going to find out. But they met and got connected. And because Milo can sense Kanye, what Kanye West really wants out of this and how he can be manipulated because he's a you know creative genius with terrible mental illness, he plays into his desire to like have this credible 2024 presidential bid. Because remember, he tried to run for president in 2020. But it fell apart because he didn't have anyone political around him. They didn't like know how to like further that whole idea in any way. Somebody's got to do the paperwork. Yeah, but Milo knows enough people from being around in 2016, like this weird random Florida person, right? And it's like, listen, you write a few checks, you can get all the things you need. I just need, you know, I'm going to point you at the people that need to have the checks written. I'm going to take a couple for myself, and sure enough, I can make this credible enough that you can act like you're running for president, right? Okay. And then he uses the whole black Hebrew Israelite anti-Semitism thing that Kanye West has decided to embark upon. And it's like, well, if you want somebody who's who's on the, on that plan, I know somebody a guy. who really hates Jews. <laughs> it's like, if you want somebody else who really doesn't like the Jews, I know a dude. And then once that trap is set and you get those three, you get you get him connected with Kanye. Then, like, you have all the toxic mist that you need to say, all right, now let's all go to Mar-a-Lago and have this conversation, right? Like, now he's got what he wants. He knows Trump will say yes to to Kanye saying, I want to come have dinner with you. He knows that's in the bag. He's not going to be able to say no. He can't stand he, he can't stand being irrelevant. And so one of the most famous people on the planet come to talk to him, he's going to say yes, absolutely. He's going to say yes to Kanye's entourage showing up because, of course, he would. Why wouldn't he? Because it's all part of the plan. Because it's all the attention that he wants. So he knows that's no problem. He just needed to make the meeting happen so that this mix of people could show up and he could get these headlines so that he can make Trump and everyone in his orbit fucking pay. <laughs> and he was successful. He was completely successful. This is the greatest grift move I've ever seen. There's no future in any of this. Milo is going nowhere on this. This whole this no, whole I didn't know Milo was, was there before you started talking. Oh yeah, he was he was there. He was at the he was at the dinner and this thing is going to fall to ashes immediately. Like the fallout as Kanye West finds out about like what hap- like who these people are and what they've said about him in the past and everything else. It's it's going to collapse. And the person who knows that the most is Milo Yiannopoulos because he's been talking trash with all these people for so long. He's got a rap sheet that's, a, you know, a million pages in length. Like Laura Loomer's out there in the streets, you know, sending like screenshots of all the times that Milo has called, uh, accused Kanye West of being a homosexual, like in texts to her. Like it's it's already just, it's already a sh- giant shit show. But that's not the point. It was always going to end in a giant shit show. But before it did, Milo Yiannopoulos was able to extract his revenge on Donald Trump and everybody else around him for casting him out as a consequence of his own stupid behavior. That's the actual story. And that's what makes it so amazing. These are like the deepest, darkest lol cows in on the politi- on the fringes of the political right who are literally the you know people who were forced out of polite society and have resorted to blacklight inspections of their friends' beds to see if they've had ah! sex with women. Ah! <laughs> ah! And that's who gets dredged up as a consequence of the right person meeting the right unstable billionaire and getting them in front of the president of the United States and making sure the press find out about it. Like that, ah! Poetry. This is poetry. This is trolling poetry, Andrew. And I am I am here for every second of the collapse that comes after it. Uh, wow. 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 So Milo is better at 4D chess than I thought. Um, <laughs> although it's probably like, it doesn't have to be this specific blow up. You just know that if you get Fuentes and Trump in a room together, sparks will happen. There will be some explosion of something for all of his ridiculous nonsensical behavior over the last two years that resulted in his political movement, turning into a 
tiny cults that he has on this on a corner of the internet that he is fending off cancellation from left and right. Um, he is still good at talking is how he got his start. It's why he has an audience, right? And all he had to do was get his ass in front of Trump and let him talk. He knew that he would say good things about him in front of witnesses. And that's all he needed. All right. <laughs> so I guess we'll end it here. So, so if that story has stimulated your senses, you can look forward to more on Thursdays here at Replacement Level Morality, and we'll see you then. <laughs>